You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you then, as our custom is, to open the Bible together. We will be in Matthew chapter 20. Now, I say as is our custom because our commitment is to try to, as a church, regularly be walking through books of the Bible, expounding upon what we find there, and letting it set the, that set the agenda. And, and not only that, but something powerful happens when we open the Bible. We believe that by, God's, by the power of God's Spirit, the Bible begins to open us. And so we believe that God will actually speak to us and meet with us. So if you don't have a Bible or have access to one, there's a paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. I would love for you to, the tray of the chair in front of you. I keep getting them mixed up. If you, reach, if you get the chair in front of you, it's a friend's Bible. Don't take that Bible. It's in the tray of the chair in front of you. It's an it's important detail. Uh, and so we'll be in the very first book of the New Testament known as the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. Now, we've been walking through this book, this gospel. The word gospel literally means good news, and it's the first of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These gospel writers tell the eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we believe is good news. Good news because we when we come to open the Bible, even in this sense, we, we aren't like others trying to get our way to God. We're not trying to earn or achieve something, but instead we open this and encounter a God who made his way to us. And this is good news for us, that we don't have to earn our way to God, but God has come to be with us and for us in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew has been telling this good news of what Christ has done for us by inviting us to see his miraculous birth, to hear about his most famous teachings, uh, th- these teachings that are still the most, the most recorded, most, most repeated, most expounded upon, more than anything else that's been published in the history of the world, to this very famous influential person, Jesus, and what it is that he came to accomplish. Matthew has been introducing us to Jesus in the last few chapters, especially like many of the gospel writers, so that we will graciously come to Jesus. And and he introduces us to Jesus by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus. And so if we come to Jesus with questions, hey, join the club. Uh, But if you want to, before we read the last half of Matthew chapter 20, which is the conclusion of this section of text that starts in Matthew chapter 18, you can roll back with me and see how the theme of this little section fits together. So if you want to roll back to me, that's a Delamitri song, uh, roll back to chapter 18 verse 1. The very first verse sets the stage for all that's covered in chapter 18, 19, and 20. And it's a question by the apostles we'll see him circle back to here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that's the question that has been reverberating as Matthew's been introducing us to people who encounter Jesus, many who don't get it, who don't quite understand it, and all as an illustration for you and I of what the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of God's grace for us in Jesus, the greatness in God's kingdom really is like. So, beginning in verse 17, we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 20 together as we contemplate the conclusion of this section you'll see about the greatness before Jesus. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, 
and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed Him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David! The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David! And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. We believe this is God's word, and I pray that it becomes more than just ink on a page for us this morning. I want to begin our time together with a question that I posed to you at the beginning of this section, way back in chapter 18, and I commend it to you and your imagination. Let it run wild. Which one of us in this room is the greatest? Go on. You know, we know. Which one in this room, which one of us is the greatest? Who's the best? The most important? Who in this room is the greatest? The, worthy, the one worthy of the most accolade and honor? Now, the second question that would help follow it up is, how did you immediately start to think about that? Like, there's a lot you can learn about yourself when even when you think, like, how did you immediately start to think about what is great and who is greatest? Did you think about who in the room is the oldest or who in the room is youngest? Who in the room is the most wealthy? Who in the room is the most influential, the most successful? Who in the room is the best dressed, the most fit? You get the idea? I wonder if you might even think about how you began to answer that question. When you think about greatness, 
What's the metric you use? How do you measure it? Because that's the question that the disciples posed to Jesus and the last three chapters have helped reflect upon. Mainly by introducing us to people who measure greatness in a way that is antithetical to Jesus, His mission and purpose, and the kingdom that He's bringing. And so I think you see three things in our time together that I want to draw some attention to and maybe draw, maybe draw out some conclusions and observations. One, you see in all three of the sections we just read what Jesus came to do. In one way or another, in different words, each of these three sections tell us what Jesus came to do, why he came, why he existed, what he came to accomplish. And then in these sections, you see two other things. Who misses it, and then you see who gets it. So you see here in this passage what Jesus came to do, who misses it, and who gets it. So let's start with what Jesus came to do. You can look at verses 17 through 19 and see very succinctly as Jesus says for the third time, to his disciples what it is that he came to do, quite literally what would happen for the next nine chapters. It says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside on the way and said to them. And then he gives a picture of what he came to do. This in and of itself might be the most helpful thing for you, especially if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're not a believer, or, or maybe you're not sure, or maybe you're just curious about this whole Christianity thing. I'm really glad you're here. You couldn't, you couldn't have an easier or better uh, little set of verses out of Jesus' own mouth to begin to ask that question well and to begin to understand why we are what we are. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is not a Christian because of something that they have done. A Christian is a Christian because we see what Jesus has done. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. He says, the Son of Man. Now, that's language hearkening back to the prophet Daniel. A picture of a fulfilled promise that God, the, the divine creator of the universe, would become as a human one. The, the Son of Man, the human would come, and he would come to deliver, come to set the captives free, come to fill this prophetic vision of God restoring all things to himself. It says the Son of Man is going to be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. But even down to the detail, Jesus predicts how that will happen. Under Roman rule, the Jewish authorities were not allowed to execute themselves. That, that they were not allowed to uh, take out, or they were not to, um, if you think of Old Testament practices of stoning, they were not allowed to, I keep wanting to say execute execution. That's not right. They were not allowed to carry out executions. And so even Jesus, the detail here of these eyewitness accounts is powerful. Jesus even predicts how that will happen. They can't, so what does it say will happen? They'll hand him over. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. That is the non-Jewish, the people of non-Jewish descent, the Romans. And they will mock him, flog him, crucify him. But rest assured, he will be raised on the third day. And right then and there, you see the content of what we believe is the Christian witness that one has come to live a life we could not live, to die a death that we deserve and was resurrected victorious over. And that's why we are what we are. That's why we do what we do. You might think of it kind of tersely this way. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Why, why, why do these people sing songs to Jesus? That's a weird thing, right? We all stood and sung and it wasn't a birthday party or a soccer game, right? That seems like out of place. Normally that isn't something we do. Uh, maybe you would sit and watch someone else sing, but you certainly wouldn't sing with them. Why would you do something? And tersely stated, you might find the answer here. Imagine there was a man more famous than anyone else, more wise and impressive 
who was powerful, in, in the greatest show on earth, who performed miracles, and then in his own public, like, and again, everything he said was, was scrutinized and picked apart by people, and he predicted his own death, died in that way, and then was resurrected just as he predicted. And here we are. That's, it. that's, that's the most amazing thing that's ever happened. And so if you wonder what Christianity is about, that's it. There was one who came, the most famous, influential person ever, more famous than anyone else. More books have been written about him. More conversations have happened about him. Think of it this way. We are cultures, ethnicities, languages, and continents away from these original events, and we're still talking about him. There is no one in the history of the world more famous and influential. That man predicted his own death and resurrection and did it. And so we sing. We think that's great. That's marvelous. That's unbelievable. A little detail I want you to see here. Notice it says he took him the 12 aside on the way to reveal himself more deeply. Just a side note here, if I would draw your attention to this, this is why we as a church want to be a church of gospel communities. That is small groups that gather together, and if you were to wonder what those are, this is it. People who are pulled aside by Jesus to meet him and know him more deeply. There's something that God does powerfully when, when Jesus is making disciples amongst the crowds and the twelve, amongst three, and even one-on-one. And we, this, is, this is where we get this idea. So verse 17 through 19, Jesus came to die and be raised. Verses 20 through 28, he came to give his life as a ransom. They come to ask for this kind of honor. The, the sons of Zebedee's mother comes and asks for this greatness. And he says, look, I can't do that. But instead, he says, this is what will happen. He says in verse 27, whoever will be first among you will be your slave. Not necessarily just in their own power or in their own strength, but because, he says, even as, and then he answers again, what it is that he's come to do. The son of man, same language, that prophetic language from Daniel, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is profound. This is unlike any other religion in the history of the world because it's not a religion. If, if you think of religion as the righteous and good things you do to get to God, this is an anti-religion because this God has come to be with us. This God doesn't need anything. It's not like the, the creator of the universe is looking to you and me and like, I, man, I'm really in trouble. Can you help me? Can you get me out of a jam? No, this God of the universe, instead of summoning people to do things for him, has come to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And this Jesus didn't come ultimately to be served, but to serve us. I'll come back to this later, later but the question that is posed by this is, will you let him? Will you let Jesus serve you in the way that you know you need him to? And then to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a redemption, as a, as a price paid, a debt owed that he cancels, covers, in order to set these free. There's a third section of what Jesus does, you see in the 29 through 34. He comes to give mercy and to healing. And, uh, to give mercy and to bring healing. And the crowd starts to rebuke this, uh, we'll come back to them as well, this obnoxiously needy couple of people who will not be silenced by the crowd. And Jesus comes, you see here, to give them mercy. They cry out to Jesus, Son of David, Lord. And this is, again, this prophetic, powerful language that we'll see played out for the next several chapters. They cry out to this Jesus for mercy. And what does he bring them? It says in verse 34, with pity. 
He touches them, heals them, and you see that, and they start to follow him. This is what he came to do. He came to live a life you and I could not live, to die a death that sinners deserved, outcasts, traitors deserved, and was raised victoriously on the third day. He came to give his life as a, a price, a ransom, a redemptive, powerful act of God to save and redeem his people. And he came to give mercy and bring healing and restoration. This is what Jesus came to do. Now, I just, over the last couple of minutes, I think summarized it fairly succinctly. And you might wonder, how could anyone miss that? Well, join the club. We'll spend the most of our time looking, who misses this? Who missed it? Who didn't seem to get what was going on? And the introduction of who misses it is a great paradox. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up and demanded something from Jesus. This is the paradox. If you were to think about and reflect upon what is the purest, most innocent and righteous kind of love and selfless affection, you might think of a mom, right? Even the Apostle Paul appeals to this as he writes an encouraging letter to the Thessalonians. He says, I loved you so much. And the way he illustrates his love for the church that he helped plant, the way he illustrates his affection for them is he appeals to what? He says, we cared for you day and night like a nursing mother. You get this picture of intimate and selfless love, literally keeping someone else alive, this skin-on-skin -skin intimate nurturing. And you might think if there ever was a pure, a most innocent kind of love and affection, it would be from a mother. Now, if you want to be crucified in today's age, tell parents how to parent. Hmm. And if you want to get crucified fast, tell moms how to mom. And so, here we go. This woman comes with her sons and asks, uh, excuse me, not even that, um, the other gospel writers tell us that she came as if speaking a condition. Hey, let me tell you something. Will you do it for me, right? Like, if I ask you to do something, will you do it for me? You already know. I mean, that's already an interesting way to come. Hey, will you do me a favor? Uh, and you're like, ah, can I hear the favor first? And so she says, she comes and asks him for something. And like the other interactions Jesus has had in these last couple of chapters, he kind of runs with it. He's like, you know what? Go ahead. Let's, let's talk about it for a little bit, which is why Matthew records it as, a, as, as an interesting exchange. What is it that you want? And she says, say that. Now, your translation might say something. It's an imperative, like command that or direct it that or make it be that. So get the picture here. The, the creator and redeemer of the universe who has come in the flesh as the redeemer of his people, the, the most powerful being in all of the universe, the one that we find for the rest of the New Testament tells us that in him we live and move and breathe. In him we have our meaning. For him and to him and from him are all glory. This one, this great and majestic powerful being, this woman comes up and tells him what to do. It's a paradox, because you might think, surely, if there is a pure and innocent kind of love and affection, it would be the love and affection of a mother for her sons. And yet you find out, nope, 
that misses out on this kingdom as well. This is so interesting. You would think of the love of a mom as the most pure and unadulterated kind of love. And yet, even it misses out on the kingdom. Now, what a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's a few little just principles, I think, throughout this passage you see. And one of them is, isn't this a beautiful picture of a mother? Wanting what's best for her sons. Um, I might add grown sons. (laughs) Uh, We know these sons of Zebedee. Uh, We don't know, uh, we find out her name in the other Gospels. Uh, But like, Matthew doesn't tell them, tell us what it is, because the emphasis is simply just on what she's doing. But these sons of Zebedee are known, James and John, as the sons of thunder. What a cool nickname. <laughs> the thunder boys, right? The, the thunderous sons. I don't know, right? And, and you, might be, you might be fooled into thinking they were thunderous, whatever they were. They were thunderous because of Zebedee, their father. I would commend to you the possibility they were thunderous because of their mom. She is savage. Walks right up to the, the, right, the, the prince of peace, the king of the universe, and says, here's what I need you to do for my boys. Now, I love that. You have to love that, right? I, I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a son of a mean mom, right? I, I, man, I'm, I'm all for strong moms, right? My, if you met my mom now, she's a grandmother, so she's like sweet. But she wasn't always that way. <laughs> and so I see this, and I, I see just a beautiful picture of motherhood, a beautiful picture of these men who end up being the inner circle of, of Jesus' movement for the next several chapters, What a beautiful picture, and yet, as beautiful as it is, it's used as a foil. It's used as an example of how not to interact with Jesus. It's used as an example of how to miss the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It's a powerful paradox. And so, think of it this way. Uh, this, This picture of Jesus' kingdom is not like even the most natural, nurturing kind of affection or relationship even as that's essential for life. It's different. And so Jesus rebukes, again, Jesus can do this. You can't talk to your mom or anyone else's mom this way. Uh, so I'm about to read in verse 22. You don't get to do this. You call your mom on Mother's Day and tell, you, tell her how thankful you are. Or if, if your mom's no, no longer with us, you spend that day telling other people about how awesome she was for bringing you into this world, okay? You do not know what you are asking. And then he turns to them and then asks, are you able to drink the cup that I, am, that I am to drink? So rebukes her on the spot and then invites more dialogue. Really? You think you can do what I'm going to do? Now that, that picture of a cup, that picture of a cup is a, is a, is, is a power, powerful prophetic uh, uh, language all the way from the Old Testament. This idea of the cup of God's wrath being poured out. That God's righteous judgment on wickedness is a cup. And then he will drink that cup. Uh, th- that's a metaphor for simply taking part in or taking place in. And he's going to take the cup of God's wrath and drink it. And, and just like the conversation he had with the rich young ruler, he just kind of lets them run with it. Are you able to do what I am able to do? And as if, the, you know, you haven't seen enough arrogance, you see, you see the, the apostles, they're like, yeah, we totally can. We can totally do whatever you do, Jesus. Now, Jesus being merciful doesn't even correct them. He's like, okay, let's let this go. Let's let this go on. And, and not one to miss the nuance says, you're right. You actually will. You will, in fact, experience a similar kind of death and rejection. 
Christian tradition tells us that every single one of the 12 apostles, every single one of them died as a martyr. That word martyr literally, literally means witness. They died as a witness to their faith in, trust in, and following of Jesus. And we find out one of the first of those martyrs is James. And the last one to die of the disciples was John. These two men serve as the bookends, as it were, of the martyrdom, the witness, the sacrifice, the cup, as it were, of suffering that they would drink. Make no mistake, they would follow in those footsteps. John lived longer than the rest of them. We don't know much about him. Christian tradition tells us that they tried to execute him. What we do know that he was, he was sent off and exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the letters of uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and this encouragement to, to Christians for all time in the book of Revelation, Jesus will win, Jesus will fix everything, he will make everything new, all as a result of him being exiled. Christian tradition tells us that it wasn't because they just hated him, they tried to kill him. Uh, the tradition goes that he, he was boiled alive, but he didn't die, which normally would kill people. And yet, since it didn't kill him, it, they freaked him out. They didn't want him around, so they sent him off to, to an island. Lo and behold, it's ironic because John, if you read the Gospel of John, if, if Twitter were a thing at this point, John would own it. John, John is that guy who just says really powerful, pithy, insightful things, right? He, he starts his gospel like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, his poetic, powerful language, and wouldn't you know by God's providence, they sent him off thinking that would shut him up. They sent him off with a pen and a paper, and he wrote one of the most encouraging things that Christians can read today in the book of Revelation. They will drink the cup. They will suffer. But what arrogance to think that they could do what Jesus was going to do. You will suffer, but your suffering will be nothing like the significance of my own suffering. And so he, he draws that contrast between the kind of glory and greatness that the disciples and their mother want and the greatness of the world. You know that the rulers and the Gentiles, you know they lord it over. You know that that's how the world works. You know that the world uses power, authority, influence, and status to use others, to push them down. But that is not what is to be, that is not so among you. If you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, relinquish your own will and right over your own life and serve as a bond slave. Why? For your own purpose? No. Verse 28, even as, as a picture to, as a signal of, the Son of Man who has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As you kind of look at all these ways that they did not get it, or at least they, they probably interpreted what Jesus was doing in the same way that you and I do and would if we were there. One, there's a picture, I think, of beautiful motherhood, isn't there? And a warning of parenthood. It isn't only for Christian parents to want what's best for their children, as though that was something they needed to protect. It is for Christian parents, ultimately, to entrust their children to Jesus and not to demand from Him, but to give to Him. So parents, children, look to Jesus. You can trust Him. You can trust his gracious choosing. You can trust his sacrifice. You can trust him to do good with your children. You can trust God the Father loves your children more than you do. You also see a principle of relationship, don't you? 
whenever you try to get access to some sort of power, prestige, or achievement, you will inevitably alienate others. And you will use one thing to get the other. Here's the, maybe the, the way I would illustrate it. We value what we serve. And you would say it, we serve that which we value. We will make sacrifices for, personal and otherwise, for the thing that we value, for the thing that we ultimately want to serve. This is what to be human is, is to ultimately live for some purpose or, or for some pursuit of something. And we, we will be serving these things, even if it's our own self, our own needs, or even our own survival, we will serve those things because we find them to be the most valuable. But notice that that kind of mechanism of sacrificing one thing for another can ultimately, if what we're after is status, power, or greatness, like these disciples and their mother, will alienate others. Did you, did you hear the response of the 10? Verse 24, when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, just so you'll know here, uh, don't give them too much credit here. It's not like they were offended and hurt in some sort of righteous way. You know this. If, if somebody, uh, like they were indignant because they ultimately wanted what those other wanted, right? If someone like comes along and, you know, they're, they're annoyed because a person's a know-it-all, anyone who's annoyed by a know-it-all is, they, they're only annoyed because they, they wish they were the know-it-all, right? And if someone's like, man, that person's a control freak, like that only people who are control freaks are annoyed by other people who are control freaks. So notice, like, it's not like they're, you know, this is, this is unrighteous and unhelpful. They're indignant. They, they, they're incensed why? Because when one person starts to pursue kind of a greatness, it always comes at the expense of another. And you will serve one by sacrificing the other. We've talked about this regularly, even as we walk through some of the letters of the Apostle Paul, when we think about what stewardship with money looks like. Because you will either love people and use money in order to love, serve, and care for them, or you'll love money and you'll use people. You get the idea that you will use one to serve the other. And he's saying, if what you want ultimately is greatness, then you will inevitably sacrifice others to get it. You will use people to get it. You'll manipulate them to get it. Whatever it is that you ultimately desire, rather than to live freely for others, you will sacrifice those others to get. And so Jesus this powerful picture has come to do for his people what they could not do for, him, for themselves. To be the ransom, to serve them in a way that they could not serve themselves. Make no mistake about the principle, though. This kind of living will either, as you live selflessly as a servant, will be for the benefit of others, or otherwise you will be living and doing things at the expense of others. And true humility is when you are free to live for others. I try to do this every once in a while uh, because I know that some of you every couple of years need a C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, it, it just keeps you going. You're going to be talking about this all day. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Jokes on you. That's actually not from C.S. Lewis. It's misattributed. It was paraphrased by Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life. I know, deep fake. He's paraphrasing something that C.S. Lewis says that I would even paraphrase to you, which can be powerful and freeing. We often think humility is when we compare ourselves to others and then kind of attribute the greater honor to them. 
Humility is not when you compare yourself to others and think they're better than you. Humility is when you stop comparing yourself to others. The very act of comparison is an act of pride. It's an act of competition. It's a type of measurement that ultimately tries to boil down a human as though they can be quantified. And you're usually using a scorecard that puts you ahead. A scorecard that, you, mind you, you don't even score that highly on, but works pretty well to put them in their place. Humility is not that you, you, you compare yourself to the people in the room and think, oh, these people are smarter and better. Humility is when you stop. You are freed from the need, the incessant need to measure up and compare yourself to others. That kind of comparison, by definition, is pride. And by definition, even, even, again, even if it feels like, it, oh, I'm comparing myself to others and, and, and I see you as greater, even that is pride and will leave them indignant and alienated. And the honor that you supposedly offer in that moment is not honor at all. It is flattery. So look at the principle of powerful humility on display. True humility, as Jesus says, is the freedom from the need to be served and to get things from people. The freedom to live for the benefit of, to meet the needs of, and for the best interests of others. This is the picture of Jesus who was ultimately free, who was ultimately great because he lived solely for others. Now friend, again, I'll ask this regularly, would you just let him serve you? Would you let him pay the price that you think you can pay? The world wants dominion to take over. And one of my, my greatest fears is Christians who have an obsession with power. Listen to how Jesus describes, hey, that's, that's how the world works. The world works in a way that exercises power over. That's not so with you. You're freed from that need. And we see the power of Jesus here, the unlimited eternal power of Jesus, not lorded over his people, but lorded under. Jesus didn't use his power to push you down. He used his power to lift you up. Some theologians say it this way, the, the most powerful picture of the incarnation is that what Jesus accomplished coming in the flesh was the first time in history when people had to look down to see God. The pagan world, he says, they sacrifice for God, not you. God has provided the sacrifice on your behalf. And after all, this is a powerful picture of what power really, a powerful picture of power. This is, a, I think, a helpful picture of what power, how power can appear when it's exercised, when it's passed around is ultimately the power and influence that you and I have something that's for the benefit of others, or is it something that we used others to get? After all, how do you measure it? How are you willing to get it? One of the ways you know that the power and influence you have is not helpful, if you, were sin, if you will sin or attempted to sin to get it or preserve it, you know you're living out of balance with what Jesus says he's come to turn right side up. Jesus came as the suffering servant. Jesus came in greatness through suffering. Now, the encouragement I think we find, at least before we moved on to who gets it, 
I think right here is the encouragement to those of you who suffer. Some of you suffer without anyone ever even knowing it. And Jesus says, in some, in some profound, paradoxical way, you are great. The small sacrifices, the things you endure, they are what is great. But if you get your sense of value and importance at the expense of others, ultimately you'll exclude them. Another way I would illustrate this is, uh, you see the indignation from, from the disciples. Uh, another way I would illustrate this is, uh, and again, I try to quote this regularly for some of you who need, who need it, it's from the musical Hamilton. Spoiler alert, Hamilton is about a thing that actually happened in history, so since you all were good history students, you already know the story of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Well, the character in Hamilton, uh, Aaron Burr, experiences a turning point, and there's a, a song that he sings that serves as a turning point for the whole of, of, the, of the musical. It's where Alexander Hamilton goes and is in a closed-door meeting where they decide where the capital of this new country would be. They decide it's going to be uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And, and it's, it's really ironic because Hamilton starts to say the same things that Aaron Burr would say. Aaron Burr was trying to manipulate at the beginning, and he was saying, like, smile more, be nicer. And then Hamilton's like, okay, I'm going to smile more, be nicer. And it gets him in this room where they make this big decision. And the turning point in that is where Aaron Burr laments in this dramatic fashion that he wishes he was in the room where it happened, got to be in the room where it happened, until the final, like the, the final, uh, the, the, kind of the, the crescendo of that song. Not only I want to be in the room where it happened, but I got to be in the room where I have to be in the room where it happened, in the room, click boom. Again, spoiler alert, you know what happened to Alexander Hamilton, not because of the play, you knew it before the play, because you're a good history student. And Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel by Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. And the turning point in the story is when he felt like an outsider. He felt like he wasn't an insider, because this is, this is one of the most powerful pictures of our existence. This need to be included, this need to be an insider, this need to be a part. Here's an actual quote from C.S. Lewis that describes that desire. He says, I believe that in all men's life at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, what a poetic way to say everybody, I believe in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements, he's saying one of the most dominant elements in our lives is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. He says one of the most dominant factors in your life and mine is this desire to be inside the ring or the terror of not being inside. He goes on, he says, the, I love the way he describes this, the delicious knowledge comes that we, and he says, you know, we four or five all huddled beside this stove, as it were. The delicious knowledge comes that is we four or five all huddled beside this stove are the people who know. Have you ever been there? Have you, have you felt the, del, tasted the, the deliciousness of being the ones who know? Have you ever been there? It's delicious, isn't it? We're, we're the insiders. We're the ones who know. Because for many things to function, you have to have a group of people who can make decisions. 
But he says, ultimately, there's an element in our lives, a desire to be a part of that or a terror of being left out. And he says that whether you're left pining away and moping outside the ring that you can never enter, or if you actually pass triumphantly further and further into these rings, one way or another, you will be that kind of man, that is, the kind of person who is owned by and driven by that desire. That desire to be inside or the terror of being outside. The kind of terror that will lead you to do awful things because you got to be in the room where it happened. You get it? And so look at the principle that it gives us of what it looks like to miss out on Jesus and miss out on the freedom that he offers. I say freedom because, after all, what a powerful thing that Christ has done that we could not. If you don't believe me, this week, do me a favor. Live this entire week and don't be entitled to anything. Don't feel owed anything. Live only selflessly, kindly, as a servant for everyone you encounter. Live in such a way this week where no one's able to offend you, slight you, steal from you. You get the idea? And then you realize, it's not that I'm not doing this because I don't want to. I'm not this because I can't. And that's where we're invited to see, instead of despair over the fact that you and I are so self-obsessed, we find joy that Jesus is the freedom out. Who is great? We saw in the last few chapters, a child. Who is great? One who fights temptation to sin. Who is great? One who restores a brother in sin. Who is great? One who forgives. Who is not great? A rich young ruler who is unwilling to lose everything that he thinks he has to get something better. Who is not great? Those who feel entitled or feel like they are owed. This is the picture of who doesn't get it. Rest assured, though, you realize this is the beauty of what Christ has come to do. What Christ has ultimately come to accomplish, you see in verse 28, he came to give a ransom. This language is rich. It's throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It's used in, in all throughout the, the book of Leviticus in chapter 19 as a picture of the redemptive price to set a slave free. The redemptive price in chapter 25 to pay for land that's locked up because of debt. In Isaiah 45, this language of ransom is used for what is paid redemptively for the captive who is set free. It's used in a parallel passage in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark where he tells this exact same story. But the other time in the New Testament to explain this, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, for there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. The teacher of the Gentiles, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice what that points out for us as obstacles to greatness. Obstacles to greatness include the need to be included, the need to be an insider, the need to be in the room where it happened. Friend, that's a, that's, that's a, think of that, that's a prison. That need to be included. That terror that you have of missing out. Of, of the fear of, of, of some better option that passes you by. Of not being invited. 
that need to be a part of whatever people are talking about, even though you don't really want to go. You just don't want to be rejected. Obstacles to greatness include the need to be in charge, the need to have a say, the need to have a voice. Obstacles might include the need for comfort, the need, from, need for freedom from suffering. After all, that might be what these, uh, these men mother wanted. They just want, hey, I want things to go well for my son. Not knowing that that would ultimately subvert the, the glory and greatness that would come through their suffering. We also have a need to benefit for ourselves to the detriment or expense of others. The need to protect what's ours. Notice this is how the Apostle Paul encourages us in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Mindset, way of thinking, way of seeing the world. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. You might even think in Christ Jesus alone, only in Christ Jesus. No one else thinks this way. Have this mind that you have in Jesus who, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but did what? emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Look at the last section. If we've just expounded upon all of the ways that someone might not get it and see who doesn't get it, look at who does. Look at me in verse, 20, uh, in verse 29, all the way to the end of the chapter. They go out from Jericho, and who gets it? Some obnoxiously needy people obnoxiously needy people who cry out to Jesus for mercy. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who get Jesus. They get his pity. They get his healing. They get his restoration. Oh, and by the way, they even get to be with him. I love that. Like they get, they get what those disciples and their mom wanted. Proximity to Jesus. I mean, even in the Oval Office, right? Like right now in the White House, you're, the, you're measured in terms of rank in, in terms of your proximity to the Oval Office. How close are you to the power? How close are you to, to this position of influence? And look, what, who, look who gets to follow Jesus. Look who gets to walk along and get that very attention from Jesus himself. It's the people who are obnoxiously needy who cry out for mercy. Did you see the two questions Jesus asked? The first one he asks to the mother of James and John. What do you want from me? And then he asks again a question, what do you want from me? Notice which one gets what they desire. The obnoxiously needy people who cry out to Jesus for mercy. Here are some responses I think we have in light of, these, in light of who Jesus is, who misses him, and who gets him. These aren't in any particular order, but I commend them to you. Uh, maybe one of them will stand out as a good and helpful response for who Jesus is, what he's done, in light of how we often miss him. One, see how great Jesus is, lowering himself for us. Behold how great Jesus is. Worship Jesus, thank Jesus, praise Jesus that he has done what you cannot. You and I can't live a life completely free of entitlement. You and I can't live a life free completely of selfishness. We can't do it. But here's the good news. We don't have to. The Son of Man has come to do what we could not. So see how great that is. Just see how great Jesus is. In your despair for the, the, as you lament the effects of our own selfishness, instead of staying there, see what Jesus has done to lower himself for us. And just see how great he is. Two, Repent of wanting worldly greatness above the greatness of Jesus. As I said before, there's no one who's more famous, more powerful, more influential in the history of the world than Jesus. 
And for us to look at His way of leading, serving, and to think that there's some better way is to miss Jesus. Repent of that. Turn from that. Confess it for what it is. It's a way that doesn't get you what you want and will alienate you from others. It always comes at the expense of excluding others. The way of Jesus is powerful. It makes us insiders without making us tyrants over the outsiders. Here's another way you can respond today as an act of faith. Honor those who serve and emulate those who cry out for mercy. Let your heroes, let the people you look up to be the people who are invisible. Remember I started with the question, who's the greatest? I mean, the greatest among us in, at, at the moment are probably uh, on the other side of the building wearing Kids Connection t-shirts. They're holding your crying children and praying for this sermon to come to an end, right? I know, we know that prayer. If you've ever served in Kids Connection, you know that prayer, Lord, Lord, please, please just come quickly, right? You know that prayer. They're the greatest. They're the invisible ones, They're the people who made the coffee that you drank, right? They're the people that aligned the chairs that you're sitting in. You get the idea? They're they're the people who did things that are normally invisible, but evidently, Jesus says, are the most important. So join me. Thank some of those people. Thank someone you know. Honor someone who's doing something that's usually thankless. And emulate that person who cries out for mercy. Think of it this way. Instead of emulating those who are self-assured and have everything figured out, how about you start emulating the people like these, the heroes of this story, who are heroes because they cry out to Jesus for mercy, loudly. Serve selflessly to point others to the one who has served us. I shared this with you uh, over the last couple of weeks. As a church, we we long for uh, this to be a time of awakening in the life of our church. We've gone to two services to make room for more people to hear about Jesus. And this is for many of you an invitation, a time to serve. Serve. Now here's the beauty of this. if that stirs up any kind of obligation or shame in you, you've missed it. You're, you're, you're in the first half of this, so you've missed Jesus. We don't serve to get something. We serve because we have everything we need. So think of it this way. We don't serve as, as a guilt offering. We don't give or serve as a shame offering. We don't serve or give as a peace offering. We serve and give because Jesus is our guilt offering, he's our shame offering, and he's our peace offering. You get the idea? And so I can say, in faith, serve, serve. Sign up, you'll see as you scan that QR code, there's ways to serve, serve kids, to welcome people the way that Christ has welcomed you. You get the idea? Serve. And you'll see, you'll begin to experience the kind of power that comes when you step into the footsteps of Jesus. You take a lower position to benefit others. And lastly, let him serve you. Let him serve you. Invite him to do today what you're probably resisting in the depth of your soul. Let him serve you by forgiving you and bringing peace. Let him serve you by beginning to heal you. Let him serve you by freeing you from the need to be great, the need for affirmation. Let him serve you by coming to do for you what you could not do for yourself. It seems like a simple thing, and yet it might be the most difficult and the most powerful act of transforming faith. Would you let him do what he came to do? Would you let him come and begin to repair and restore all that sin and death have broken in your life and mine? Now, all of these overlap, but maybe one of them will speak to you more than the other. 
And here this is the beautiful part of our serving and, and all of this. Like, do you find yourself serving out of guilt or obligation? Friend, hear the good news of the Son of Man who came to serve rather than to be served. Do you find yourself flattering people? Your words of honor aren't actually selfless. They're to get something, to feel a certain way, or to make them think more highly of you. Well, friend, hear the good news of Jesus, the servant who came to esteem you, to speak words of affirmation and love from the Father to draw you back to Him. Hear the good news. Hear the invitation. And friend, join me in the loud, obnoxiously needy people who've cried out to Jesus for mercy and have found it. Let's pray together and thank Him for that. Jesus, thank You so much that You have come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Uh, thank You that You have come to serve us, to meet needs that we did not even know we had. Thank you that you have come to, on behalf of the Father and in the place of sinful people, make right what is broken by sin. So God, first, if there's some in this room, maybe, maybe they're questioning what it means to be a Christian, wondering what this is, might they hear even this morning the good news that Jesus has not come to demand something of them, but Jesus has come to give something to them. Might they receive that today? Might they marvel at the greatness of Jesus, the God of the universe who would lower himself to grant us pardon, who would grant us grace? Maybe for the rest of us, we know this, we've heard this, and yet we feel, we feel the bondage to self. We feel the weight of not being able to let go of our own entitlement to things we need, we're obsessed with being an insider. We're obsessed with being in charge. We're obsessed with having a say. Would you even now, as only you can do, fix our gaze on the one who gave up all of those things so that we would be free from them. We would be free to know and trust and follow him. To live a life of reconciliation with the Father and with others that was intended all along. Lord, thank you for these invitations you offer to us by grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.